This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you for uh, the scriptures that we have, Lord. We recognize that when we read and think on them, that it's not just reading and thinking on an ordinary book, but they are the words of life, and you promise that when we read them and when we reflect on them, that your spirit actually takes them and changes our hearts and changes our lives. So, Father, we pray that the words of, of my mouth now and, and the meditations of our hearts would be uh, pleasing to you here this morning as we look at your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you didn't have to watch the news uh, to know that it was a really uh, tough and challenging week uh, for the city of Baltimore this week. Many things that, that we have looked at that have really broken our hearts, whether you live in the city or not. Things that uh, have been hard to watch and digest as we've looked at the news. Some of us in shock. We've seen uh, peaceful protests that have uh, turned violent. In just a moment, we've seen innocent protesters and policemen and firemen be injured for just doing their jobs. We've seen the national media descend onto Baltimore and describe it to the rest of our country and even the rest of our world as uh, nothing short of a war zone. We've had friends of ours who have checked into hotels this week because they were afraid to go back to their houses. We've had our eyes open to instances of police brutality, and we've been reminded that there are so many neighborhoods in Baltimore that suffer from lack of opportunity. We've seen baseball games played to empty stands. We've lived under fears and rumors of purge riots, hopefully not coming to our enter or entering into our neighborhoods in very many ways as we've Looked at the city of Baltimore this week, we've had to recognize that in many ways it has been an absolute mess. But we've also this week seen all sorts of instances of beauty rise out of this mess. We've seen communities policing themselves, placing themselves between the police and rioters. We've seen thousands upon thousands of people take to the streets 
to advocate for peace. This week, I had the privilege of of standing with other community leaders as they advocated for peace along the the York Road corridor. Our uh, councilman here in the Northern District on Tuesday heard rumors of demonstrators coming to destroy sections on York Road. So he called the community to come out, community leaders and people who lived in the community to come out. And they arrived in force uh, to push back anyone that may have uh, considered smashing uh, and looting area businesses. They came and made posters, advocated for people to honk for peace. And when the police showed up, they showed up tired, but they showed up thankful that the community had come out in force uh, to in some ways do their job in ways that, that they couldn't. It was a remarkable moment. One of the more beautiful moments that I got to see this week was uh, the BSO having a free show uh, outside of the Meyerhof on the streets of Baltimore, allowing their beautiful music to just fill the area. We saw Ray Lewis and our beloved Ravens move into uh, the places that were most uh, hardest hit with a message of peace and generosity for those neighborhoods. And we've seen the citizens of Baltimore move out in force this week in an effort to switch the narrative about Baltimore, helping the national media see that this really is a city that accomplishes great things. It reminded me all throughout the week of really the honest pride that we have as Baltimore citizens. We know that this city is a mess. We know that to be true. We know that this city has huge problems, massive ones, often ones that we can't even uh, address. We are a messy city, but in many ways, it is our mess. And we choose to love the city anyway. In very many ways, this city uh, can be characterized as a beautiful mess. And in some ways, that is what the letter of Revelation is really all about. And these letters that we've been looking at in the book of Revelation are really all about this very thing. They show us that just like our city, churches can often be very messy. There's beauty in churches, but they are also very messy at the same time. One of my Favorite writers, uh, Eugene Peterson, said this about churches. He said, The churches of Revelation show us that churches are not Victorian parlors where everything is always picked up and ready for guests. They are messy family rooms. Entering a person's house unexpectedly, we are sometimes met with a barrage of apologies. But St. John does not apologize. Things are out of order to be sure, but that is what happens to churches when they are lived in. They are not showrooms, they are living rooms. And if the persons living in them are sinners, then there are going to be clothes that are scattered about, handprints on the woodwork and mud on the carpet. For as long as Jesus insists on calling sinners and not the righteous to repentance, Churches are going to be an embarrassment to the fastidious and a front to the upright. St. John sees them simply as lampstands. They are places, locations where the light of Christ is shown. They are not themselves the light. 
You may have been with us over the past year and a half in City Church, and you may have seen us grow over the past year and a half. And you may be here and think that City Church is just this great church. And that it's perfect. Every, there's so much energy. There's so much excitement to it. But make no mistake. City Church is not perfect. We are messy. We have good and beautiful things about us. We have strengths. But we have weaknesses too. We have beauty and we have blind spots all at once. And the reason that is true about City Church and the reason it's true about all churches is because churches are full of people. People are small microcosms of the church. They are small microcosms of this city. And they remind us that we are messy. But because of Jesus' presence and through him, we can be called not just messy, but a beautiful mess. And this letter that we're going to look at uh, really briefly this morning, this letter to the church at Thyatira, uh, shows that to us in a very vivid way. Thyatira was really the, the least known and the most obscure of all the cities that we've looked at thus far in the book of Revelation. It was a blue-collar town that was known for its trades and its artisans. There were woodworkers and linen workers and leather workers. There were slave dealers all throughout the city and bronze smiths. It was a city that was originally founded uh, as a military outpost, but after it had its usefulness as a military outpost, it became a center for manufacturing, and it was run by uh, influential and powerful trade guilds uh, throughout the city. Ironically, even though it is the least known of all the cities, it gets the longest letter out of all the cities in the book of Revelation. And the message it receives, given to them by John from Jesus himself, lets that church know how they are doing. And this letter offers to us one con a commendation for what they've been doing, one correction for what they've been doing, and one promise that I'd like to look at here this morning. The first thing you see, and you see it in verse 19, is a commendation that they receive, an encouragement that they receive for things that they've been doing. It says in verse 19, it says, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. You see, the church at, at Thyatira was a church of doers. They were the ones who were uh, out front in the community. They were feeding the hungry. They were caring for all the widows and the oppressed uh, all throughout the city. They had persevered in their good works, which meant that, that their good works were not just a flash in the pan, one-time event in order to assuage their guilt or to check off the mercy box because they should. But they were a church that was living out the gospel consistently in deeds of mercy and service in their community. And they weren't just stagnant in their deeds of mercy and service, but, but Christ actually honors them saying they're actually growing in their deeds of mercy and service. They are multiplying daily in what they are doing in the community. You see, this church understood that for faith to mean anything at all, it had to be a faith that was lived out in the community and in its city. 
So Jesus commends them for it. But his commendation does not come without correction as well. And you see the correction in verse 20, where Jesus says this to them. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The the passage talks about a prophetess whose name was Jezebel, and she was leading this church into all sorts of sexual immorality and all sorts of idol worship. Now, it's really unclear whether this was an actual woman who was present in the church named Jezebel or whether it was a symbol whether it was symbolic of a group of false teachers or false teachings that was in some ways leading the church astray. But either way, the church was guilty of compromising uh, the truth, just like the church that we saw last week, the church of Pergamum had done as well. You see, because this city was run by these really powerful uh, trade guilds, For someone to uh, survive economically in this city, they'd have to be a member of one of these trade guilds. And each trade guild would have these kind of initiation rites. If you think of kind of fraternities and sororities that exist in uh, our college campuses or in our culture now, it was similar to that. And these initiation rites would involve these incredible kind of guild banquets that would be held at the local temples all throughout the city. And in order to become a member of one of these trade guilds, one would have to worship the patron god of that particular guild. They would not only have to worship, but they'd have to sacrifice animals to that god. And they would have these huge feasts where... Uh, where the guild would gather together and would worship the, the god of their trade guild. They would sacrifice animals to this god, and then they would hold these great feasts, uh, and they would eat the food from the animal that they had sacrificed. And many believe that all sorts of prostitution and sexual practices would be a part of these initiation rites that were a part of these trade guilds. So you can imagine what the challenge would be for Christians living in the city of Thyatira. Do they compromise their faith and participate in these banquets that were the center of this ancient culture? Or do they commit economic suicide in order to remain faithful to their faith? Well, the letter tells us the answer. It tells us that the church, being led by these false prophets, chose to compromise their faith. Because the false teachers had told them that to participate in these feasts, to participate in these guilds, really didn't matter to their faith. In so doing, the church at Thyatira had walked away from the truth. And God warns them in very, very, very vivid ways of impending judgment that was coming their way if they did not repent and turn and walk back towards the truth. This letter is really interesting in a lot of different ways. One of my favorite things to do is to kind of, uh, I'm weird like this, but I like to study kind of church history and, and movements 
uh, all throughout church history. I've had the privilege of, of teaching church history uh, at the university here. But for some reason, throughout church history, you almost can look at it like a pendulum that swings from one extreme to the other. For seasons throughout church, throughout church history, the church has rediscovered or, or been intensely committed to the truth of what you see in the scriptures and the truth of the gospel. There have been seasons where the church has become exceedingly passionate about defending the truth of the gospel. It's come through really thoughtful and committed study of the scriptures. And because of that, the church has become passionate about defending the truth of God against a very hostile culture. But there's something that often happens as a byproduct. In the process of this, the church often loses its passion for deeds of mercy and service to the culture and to the community. For some reason, churches become so passionate about the truth that they become locked in some sort of ivory tower. They become so passionate about defending the truth of the gospel that they miss out on living the truth of the gospel powerfully through deeds of mercy and service in their culture. So healthy reform movements have come that have forced the church in some ways to auto-correct throughout history. Churches rediscover a passion for social justice and for caring for the poor and oppressed in their communities. But time and time again, these movements tend to ignore the opposite. They intend to ignore the importance of the truth. The pendulum swings in the opposite direction and their faith simply becomes about deeds. And the truth no longer becomes important. It's why we as a church have to remain committed to the gospel in both the words that we say and the truth that we center around and the deeds of mercy and service for our community and for our city. The temptation for all churches is to fall off the cliff in either extreme, to be subject to one extreme of that pendulum. It says of Jesus in Luke 24 that Jesus was a man who was mighty in deed and word before God and all people. And this is the challenge that the church has to face as it emulates Jesus Christ. To be a community of people that are committed to the gospel in its truth and in its deed, in mercy and service. But I think the letter adds one extra component in its message to the church at Thyatira. You see, Jesus is clearly angry at the false prophets that are leading away the people from the truth. But there's something else that's going on here. Because what you see in this letter is that Jesus is upset at the church for tolerating the message of these false prophets. You see, it reminds us that the church is not just to be a community that centers itself on the truth, but it is also supposed to be a community that actively speaks truth into the lives of one another. 
We talked about this last week uh, in our inquirers course that meets uh, after our service. But it's become popular for many in, in kind of church circles or, or evangelical circles or, or even Christian circles. It's become popular for many in our faith to be, only, to be content with only their vertical relationship between them and God. Many have embraced a, a purely individualistic faith. They've forsaken the idea or they feel like they've moved beyond the idea of being involved in a church community. In their defense, many of them have made this choice because they've been hurt by the church. Something's happened in their life that, that makes them want to give up on the church itself and, and just, just maintain this vertical relationship between them and God. But the church community is one of God's most powerful means for us to grow as individuals in our faith. Because the reality is all of us have blind spots. We have areas in our lives that are less than desirable that we are totally oblivious to. How many times can you think of people that you've observed from a distance and you've seen a blind spot in their lives, but, you've, but you realize they're totally oblivious to the fact that they act this way. It's easy for us to see it in other people, but it's very humbling to think that we have blind spots in our lives that we are totally oblivious to as well. And that's why God gave us the church. God wants us to be a community that is centered on the truth, but also a community that speaks truth into each other's lives. It needs to be done heavily seasoned by love and by grace, but it needs to be done. That's part of what God's design for the church is all about. Frankly, this is why so many of us have a really push-pull uh, uh, reaction when it comes to thoughts about the community of the church. We want that community in our lives, but at the same time, we are afraid of it. We're afraid of the fact that it may expose the messiness of our lives to other people. Frankly, we often just don't want to get our hands dirty with the messy lives of other people as well. But this is God's design for our lives, to speak truth into each other's mess. Not only are we called to be passionate about the truth, but we are called to speak that truth into one another's lives. So we've seen an encouragement, we've seen a correction, and finally we see in a letter one of God's promises for this church. It says in verse 26, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. See, as we've looked at these letters, and eagerly as you look through the entire book of Revelation, you have to view it through the grid of something that happens in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, John receives this incredibly vivid and powerful vision of Jesus Christ himself in heaven. 
And really, that is the grid that you have to view the entire book of Revelation. I have a friend who describes it this way. He, he, uh, he is a pastor himself, and uh, his wife is an artist. So from time to time, uh, they like to go to art museums and, and look at art. And he says anytime he goes to an art museum, uh, the first thing he does when he comes up to a painting is he walks right up to it, walks up and, and looks very closely at uh, the, this piece of art, uh, once wanting to see its kind of brush strokes and its intricacies. And his wife, as an artist, always grabs his arm and says, where are all the seats that are here in this art museum? And then he looks around and he notices that all the seats in an art museum are actually set much farther back from paintings. And her argument is, is that paintings are intended to be looked at from a broad vision standpoint. And then you move in from a broad vision standpoint to look at the brushstrokes and the intimacy of each piece of art. You see, what Revelation 1, what Revelation chapter 1 does is it gives us that big picture. It gives us that broad vision. And then when we get to the letters, it offers us the little bitty brushstrokes of each and every one of these churches. But in the end of this letter, what Jesus does is he returns to the bigger picture. He returns to the broader vision and he says, I will give him the one who overcomes the morning star. You see later in Revelation in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus himself refers to himself as the bright morning star. You see, the bright morning star is that that first bit of light that breaks through the darkness of the morning that signals all the the promise and the potentiality of a new day that is about to dawn. I don't know if you noticed uh, really this week uh, the quote that has been in the mouths of protesters and all over their signs has been a quote uh, from Martin Luther King that says this. It says, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Friends, it is easy for us to get lost in the brushstrokes of our messy lives. It is easy for us to get lost in the brushstrokes of a particular messy church. And it is very easy, especially this week, for us to get lost in the messy brushstrokes of the city of Baltimore. And that's why we need the broader vision. That's why we need to look to Jesus, a man who is mighty and word and deed, and he needs to be our vision. Sure, we need to to recognize and to own the messiness that sin has caused in our lives But then we look to Jesus and we flee to him in forgiveness, believing that he can make beauty out of our mess. And when we do that, we can take comfort in the promise that is offered to this church. That if we are in Christ, 
that bright morning star shines in our lives. We are his and he is ours.